My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. Um, we, uh, we do this thing every week where we gather to place ourselves beneath Scripture, uh, to sing out, to cry out, to pray together, to be with one another. And we believe something unique happens in this space and time, that we believe that if you belong to Jesus, there's nothing you could do to get Jesus to quit being with you. Uh, he will never leave you or forsake you. But uh, what the Bible also teaches is that in this time and in this space, something unique happens. He is, he is present with us in a special way when we gather as the church to be together, to pray, to sing, to, to read scripture, to hear from him. And so we believe that it's no accident that you're here this morning. We believe that something uniquely uh, sacred is happening as the church gathers week in and week out. So what appears to be maybe a mundane every Sunday gathering, uh, the Bible doesn't speak about this in a mundane way. It speaks about it in a very sacred, mysterious way. So thank you, church, for being here. We might gather and do and be uh, in this sacred space together. Uh, this summer, we are studying the Apostles' Creed together. We just confessed it, uh, that we believe some crazy things. Uh, this document has been around since the very first century, since the inception of the church. Uh, we believe, and through oral tradition that was then written down in the second or third century, that apostles themselves wrote this document. And it was, um, it, was, it was used that when the early church would, would uh, have these new converts who were placing faith in Jesus the Messiah, uh, that they would be baptized underwater. And as they came out of the water, they would confess what you just confessed uh, to believe. Um, for thousands of years, the church, the global church, the big C church, the church, the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church, the Episcopalian church, the Protestant church, the Presbyterian church has confessed to believe uh, what we just said we believe and so you can kind of say that, um, and, and you maybe said it because of peer pressure. Maybe you felt like you had to say what we just uh, read out loud. But if you believe what you just confessed to believe, um, you would probably read it and hear it and go, this, this seems like some very core basic tenets of our uh, Christian faith. And you would be right. These are some very core basic tenets of our faith. Elementary even, that of course I believe that God made the world. Of course I believe that Jesus is his son. Of course I believe uh, that he died for our sins. What's interesting about this document, though, and why we confess these core tenets of our faith is that we believe is that the, more, the farther up and farther in we go to these tenets of our faith, they don't get more elementary, they get more mysterious. That you just confess to believe, like we said, some crazy things. You believe Jesus was born of a virgin. You believe in life after death. You believe, you believe that you can have your sins forgiven. Did you know that? And so we, we confess these things to, to remind ourselves, and if you're new to the faith or questioning the faith, this is what the Christian faith believes, is this document. These are, these are the basic, elementary, core, and very mysterious tenets of our faith. So that's why we're studying it this summer, to go farther up and farther in to the mystery that is the Christian faith according to Scripture. So... Here's what we've read so far and studied so far, kind of line by line and chunk by chunk of the creed. Um, you can throw it back up there, Courtney. We have this. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. It's where we stopped last week, and now just the very next single line, this is a, a pillar line, kind of beginning the second half of the creed, it says, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. This is the line of our creed. This is the biblical doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. It's not metaphorical. It's not hypothetical. It's not sentimental. 
The creedal and biblical confession is that Jesus was literally, physically, and actually dead. He was actually dead, we confessed that last week. And that three days later, he literally and physically and actually rose from the dead. And it's important for us to state that we believe that because the biblical presentation of this doctrine, that Jesus literally, physically, and actually died, and that three days later, he literally, physically, and actually raised again, the way that the Bible presents those doctrines, the way the Bible presents those is not just as facts that you need to mentally assent to, that this is how you win arguments and this is how you know what you believe so you can argue against the other side. That's not at all how the Bible presents these core tenets. The way the Bible talks about these core tenets that he literally physically and uh, actually died and that he literally physically and actually rose again is that if you don't believe that he literally rose again, if you don't believe that he actually and physically rose again, you're not gonna get any benefits of the resurrected Jesus in your life. If it's really going to actually change you, if it's going to actually hold you, you have to believe that it actually happened. And that's not like, hey, work yourself into believing this crazy doctrine. What it's trying to invite you into is that because he literally, physically, and actually did it, that it can actually change your life and your world. One scholar I read this week said, you're not going to be able to handle real trouble in life unless you believe in a real resurrection. As we face real pain and as you face real trouble and as you face, face real sorrow and real loss and real angst and real, I don't know what the world is doing and I don't know how I'm gonna be in the world, you're gonna need a real resurrection to hold you. And perhaps the most dense chapter in the whole Bible on the resurrection comes from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. So we're gonna read some selected verses from it that not just prove this doctrine, but prove why it matters. It's, it's 58 verses long. You're welcome for not reading all of that this morning, okay? Uh, we could, Paul has a lot to say about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Romans chapter eight is another pillar chapter on the resurrection, but 1 Corinthians 15 is a massive chapter. We're gonna read some selected passages from it, some selected verses from it. And I did such a good job of proof texting my outline that I forgot to include in our reading one of the verses I needed. Uh, so you're just gonna have to trust me, okay, that it's in there, all right? I'm not making it up. But if you got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're gonna read, we're gonna be skipping all over. It might be easier just to follow along on the screens. Uh, you can trust it. Uh, I'm not making this up, I promise. But here's verse three is the beginning of our selected readings from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, meaning it was prophesied and projected, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now skipping down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Skipping down to verse 25 and 26. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now skipping down to verse 54 through 57. Then shall come to pass the, victor, the saying that is written, O death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to your text now as we're studying this ancient creed. Um, Would you help us not just to see the reality um, of what is true? Would you help us to be changed by it, to be mesmerized by it? Would you help us to find this creed beautiful? Your text, your Bible, your scripture, Jesus, shows us so many things. And this morning, um, I pray especially for those of us that are hurting that are weeping, that you would weep with those that weep this morning, that you would use the power of the resurrection, the beauty of the resurrection to comfort those, to give those who mourn great hope. We pray in your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, so lots to unpack from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, We're gonna look at two benefits. Remember we said if the resurrection isn't real, you won't have what you need to face real trouble and real sorrow in life. So two real problems that the resurrection speaks to in our life. It speaks to lots, but two we're gonna look at this morning, two real problems. First thing that we're gonna look at that the resurrection speaks to is the problem of our shame, light topic for Sunday morning, and then the second, even lighter, is the problem of death. So the problem of shame and the problem of death the resurrection speaks to. And I actually did include it in our reading. Last service, I thought that I didn't, but the first verse we're gonna look at is verse 17. Courtney, will you throw up verse 17 for us? says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Here's the logic that Paul just used to invite you into believing the power of the real resurrection. If Jesus Christ is still dead, then you are still under the power and the condemnation of sin. Because here's what shame loves to do. Here's what I know full well. I've spent thousands of hours with my shame and the demons that haunt me. Here's what shame loves to do. Shame loves to hurl accusations at you. It loves to drag you in the courtroom and it loves to present all the evidence from your life of things that you've done, of things that you've said, of things that you've thought. Rage you've actually had, lust you've actually had, greed you've actually had, anger and wrath you've actually committed and acted on. And it loves to bring those into the courtroom and it loves to say, look at what you've done. And now because of what you've done in this courtroom, look at who you are now. You are worthless. You are, you do deserve condemnation. You are a failure as a parent. You are a failure as a child. You are a failure as a woman. And now it loves to argue its case. Shame loves to hurl this argument at you with real evidence from your life. I'm not a lawyer, but do you know what is really hard to argue with in an actual courtroom? Real evidence. And so shame loves to bring up real things from your real life and then use the real things from your real life to accuse and condemn you. And Paul just said, if Jesus is still dead, sin and shame still have that power over you. It can still crucify you in that courtroom. But if Jesus is alive, it doesn't have power over you anymore. It may drag you into the courtroom, but it doesn't have a case anymore. Romans chapter four, which is another place where Paul talks about this, says that Jesus was crucified for our sins but he was raised for our justification. That's a legal term in a courtroom. He was crucified for your sins, but he was raised for your justification. How is it that the resurrection gives us something to stand on in the courtroom where our shame would love to drag us? How does it work? How is it that this is a paradigm that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter four and several other places that if Jesus Christ has raised from the dead, you are justified in the court, in the heavenly courts. This is a biblical paradigm that requires a little bit of backdrop. Here's one way that the Bible would prove this. 
So over and over again in the Old Testament, we're zooming way back and way out, over and over again in the Old Testament, God's wrath is referred to as a cup. And it says that God's judgment, his righteous judgment against sin and the nations and darkness and destruction, God's wrath is a cup that will be poured out. And when God's wrath is poured out, it will be poured out and everything that stands in the, in the, in the path of God's righteous wrath will be decimated and annihilated. Nothing can stand against God's wrath, his righteous wrath and righteous judgment against sin and destruction. God's cup, God's cup, God's cup, it's full of liquid. And the drink that's inside God's cup, when it's poured out, no one can stand in its way because it will decimate you because it is a righteous judgment of sin and darkness in the world. Okay, so that's this image, this metaphor is God's cup of wrath over and over again in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he is to be crucified. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and his disciples have fallen asleep and he's praying to God the Father and he's sweating blood because he's so stressed and so anxious. And he says, Father, if there be any way that this cup pass before me, that, this, that I don't have to drink this cup, may it be so. That if there's any other way to accomplish the saving of the world than for me to have to drink this cup, may it be so. Please let this cup pass for me. What cup's he talking about? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. And what Jesus knows more than anybody in here is that the cup of God's wrath isn't just about a physical death coming to Jesus. What Jesus knew was that the cup of God's wrath means eternal separation. And from eternity past, the Trinitarian Godhead, Jesus, the Son of God, has never been separated from God the Father. And so he's saying, Jesus, uh, Jesus is saying, hey, God the Father, I'm about to step into something that I've never stepped into before, being separated from you. Can you please let this cup of your wrath being separated from you pass from me? Because he knows that the cup of God's wrath will fully destroy and fully remove itself from the offending guilty party. So Jesus asked the father, will you remove this cup of ultimate death and ultimate separation from me? And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And he goes to back to the garden and Judas betrays him with a kiss and he's carried off to Golgotha to be hung on crossbeams naked. Jesus knew though that the pain of the cross was not just physical, it was. Jesus knew the pain of what I'm walking into is that I'm about to be decimated and separated from my father, which is why on the cross, Daryl talked about this last week, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in Jesus's earthly life that he refers to God not as his father because he's being separated from his father for the first time since eternity passed. He's drinking the cup of God's wrath in that moment, taking on the sin of the world. Not my will, but yours be done. God, I will go and I will drink this cup for my people. So here's the question before you. Did Jesus drink the whole cup? And the gospel news to you is potentially the greatest news you've ever heard. He drank every last drop. Jesus, we say on the cross, fully absorbed and fully satisfied the wrath of God. He took the cup of God's wrath against sin and destruction in the world, the righteous judgment of God, and he drank it to the bottom and he poured it out and there's nothing left in it. See, anyone under God's wrath must die. Jesus died. Jesus must be separated from God the Father, and he was. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you separated yourself from me? You have removed yourself, that is part of your wrath. 
But if Jesus has been raised to life, that means that not only is the cup empty, that means that there's no, left, there's no wrath left in the cup to be poured out anymore. If we have an alive Jesus, that means that the wrath of God against sin for God's people is now satisfied. It means that the death and the separation that we formerly deserved has now been swallowed up by Jesus. So do this mathematical and logical equation. If Jesus drank the whole cup of God's wrath, if Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath on the cross and he's still alive, guess what that means for those that belong to Jesus? There is no more of God's wrath left for you. Zero. Not one drop is left in the cup. But if Jesus had stayed dead, if the tomb was, was still full of Jesus' body, then you and I would still be under the curse. You and I would still have some wrath to pay for. You and I would still have some debt to owe. But if the tomb is empty and death has been swallowed up, the ultimate payment for sin, if death has been swallowed up, then there is no more wrath to pay. Because Jesus drank the cup to the bottom. Jesus defeated death. Best way I've heard it said is that Jesus blew a hole in the back of death and walked out the other side. He decimated death. He dealt death a death blow. And death was the payment. Death was the experience. Death was the consummation of the wrath of God. And so if death has been destroyed, if Jesus blew a hole in the back of death and walked out the other side, then God's wrath has been satisfied. And now Jesus being resurrected is the proof that you need that the payment went through. I'm sure this is sacrilegious on some levels to compare the death of the son of God to a receipt. But what's a receipt? A receipt is proof of the payment. And the resurrection is, is the great receipt in all of history. That if you have something in a store that you've paid for and you're walking around the store with it and you have a receipt to show and someone comes and stops you and says, I'm sorry, sir, you can't take that. And you go, it's been paid for, back off. It's been paid for. The resurrection is your great receipt that when the accuser roars in the courtroom and lists all the things that you've done like that day or this lifetime and it starts to accuse you and it lays the evidence down, you get to pull out the receipt and say, all of those sins have already been paid for. You can't charge me for those again because I've already paid for those. I didn't pay for them, but one in my place has. And he satisfied the wrath. He satisfied, satisfied the requirement owed. See, if Jesus is still dead, then you still owe something for your sins. But if Jesus is alive, there's nothing else to pay. This is, this is the logic of Paul in Romans chapter eight, basically saying, you can't be charged for something. There is no double jeopardy in God's court. You can't be charged for something that someone has already paid for on your behalf. In Romans chapter eight, Paul says, who can bring a charge? Who can bring an accusation? Which is what shame loves to do. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It's God who justifies. God's the judge. He's justified you. And then he says in the next verse, it's Jesus Christ who died more than that was condemned for us. And he was raised a new life. And so who can charge you with anything? There is no double jeopardy for sins in your past, present, or your future. Jesus carried them on the cross and he drank the cup to the bottom. So you can't pay for sins that have already been paid for. It's not possible. It's not that there isn't any wrath against sin. There is an eternal wrath against sin. It's that God has already poured all of his wrath on Jesus. So now none of it is left for you. This is why it's called the gospel. It's good news. We can't be condemned for our sins, not because God doesn't condemn sin. It's that God has already condemned our sin on Jesus's back. The condemnation has already happened. You can't pay for it again. 
And the empty tomb guarantees that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 1. God has poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. And so now if I'm in Christ, guess what? There is no condemnation left for me or you. If he hasn't been raised, you and I still owe something for our sin. But if Jesus Christ was raised for your justification, then there is no debt to pay. This is how the real resurrection of Jesus liberates us from our shame. Because when the accuser roars at us with sins that I have done, I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. He's already paid for them. There is no more accusations. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Which means this. Here's what an empty tomb guarantees you in your relationship with God the Father, or better yet, his relationship with you. That from here on out, if you belong to Jesus and he has swallowed up God's wrath and drank the cup to the bottom, here's what it means for you. The only posture that God will ever have towards you ever again is delight, not wrath. He can't have anything else. He's already poured his wrath on Jesus. And so now all he has for you is delight. Will there be discipline? Yes, but it will always be from a fatherly place that delights in his children, never from wrath and condemnation. Jesus swallowed that up. You will only experience the Father's delight, never his wrath. That's the reality of the resurrection, one of them. It rids you of your shame, it frees you from the courtroom. You have the receipt from all eternity to say, you cannot hold me for these sins anymore, accuser. You cannot condemn me for these because my Jesus was condemned for me. That's the first reality of the real resurrection. And then secondly, just dealing with some light topics this morning. Paul wants to hone in on this one next. He says this. This is kind of the, the punch. This is kind of like what most of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. He sums it up in verse 25 and 26. Courtney, will you throw it up there? It says, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You thought Harry Potter's parents came up with that on their gravestone. Because it's on there, and J.K. Rowling stole it, and she didn't give Paul any credit. But Paul said it first. I think J.K. is a Christian, even if she doesn't know it yet. Tell her to call me. But here's what, here's what, here's what Paul just said. This, this is one of, if not the most distinguishing realities of Christianity. This is what makes Christianity perhaps more unique than any other world religion or philosophy. We believe, you just confess that you believe it, but we believe death has no more power anymore over the Christian. According to the Christian, according to the Bible, according to the creed, death is not the end of the story. Death has been defeated by Jesus. He blew a hole in the back of death and walked out the other side. Everyone in the history of the world wants to know what will death be like. And only the Christian has the confidence to stand and say, I have no idea, but I'm not afraid of it. You would sound like a lunatic if you said that without any kind of reason or something to stand on. Only if Jesus has defeated death could you stare death in the face and say, I have no idea what it's like. It might terrify me until I knock on his door, but I know that when I walk through that door, however it comes, it is not the end of the story. How do you think that reality hits for like Ukrainian Christians who are watching their family members be blown apart every day? What do you think they're holding on to right now? Or how do you think it hits for Africans that have experienced genocide 
and watched hundreds of thousands of their tribesmen and tribeswomen and children die? Or how about violence in housing projects like two and a half miles from here where our Napier team serves that deals with murder every day? What do you think they're like gripping on when it comes to Christian confession? Or how about cancer wards or COVID floors or widows or orphans? What do you think they cling to? What do you think they have to believe is true? What do you think they're dying to to hold on to, dying to hold on to them? Is that death has been defeated. Death is not the end. That is true for those who are in suffering and in loss. It hits a little bit different for a generation and a cultural moment that is doing everything in its power to avoid the reality of death and pretend like death isn't coming for us. We live, you live, we are, we are inculcated, indoctrinated by no doing of our own. Now we participate in it, but we are in a cultural moment known as the postmodern era. Thank you, enlightenment. We're progressing through, and here's, here's where we are right now. This postmodern moment, and it doesn't even matter the technical language of it, here's what it looks like and feels like, and here's what, what we're being taught. We have this cultural approach to death, which loves to remove any need for life after death, any need for a transcendent reality that you can't see or understand. We call that transcendence, things that finite minds can't reason with, even though for millennia before, that's all that humanity has done is believed in transcendence. But we don't do that anymore. We don't deal with things that we can't reason with or logically prove. And so here's where we are. If we remove transcendence, here's all we have left is imminence, which is like right here. It's called the imminent frame, like your existence as is. And because we've removed transcendence and we don't understand it, and we can't prove it, so all we have is this. This is literally where the, the, like, the silly little acronym YOLO comes from. You only live once. Here's what that means. YOLO living means this. Get all of your meaning, get all of your joy, get all of your purpose, get all of your ecstasy, get all of your bliss now. And don't let anybody stand in the way of that. Don't let anybody tell you you can't be whatever you wanna be. Don't let anybody tell you you can't go get what you wanna go get. Don't let anybody tell you that your dreams are silly. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't have what you wanna have right now. The focus is the stomach. The focus is the imminent. And it makes everything about how we live our lives right now, and I'm guilty of this, we're all guilty of this, that my life has to be epic now. I wanna feel a certain way all the time. And if I'm not feeling a certain way all the time, then something's wrong with me or the world around me. And I've gotta max out my ecstasy and my bliss now. So we're doing everything we can to act like death isn't coming for us. And sure, we, like if someone says like everybody dies or nobody lives forever, it's like, yeah, but I'm gonna get mine now. So long as I can then in practice keep death, keep my death, this abstract thing, then I get to keep living in the oblivion that death is coming for me and everybody I love. That's real, that's happening. But we act like it's not happening. Dealing with reality means being honest enough to pause and acknowledge that I will have to deal with the finality and the pain of death, if I haven't already, very soon. You know that OP gathering we're having? That, guess what people who are not trying to be hip and cool anymore spend their time thinking about? My wife's grandmother has been staying with us for two weeks. Guess what she talks about all the time? Life is a breath. Life is, life will go by like that. You've got these little kids at home. I know you're trying to soak it all up, but guess what's gonna happen? It's gonna be gone. Because they know 
And there's a ton of wisdom in that. That's what Psalm 39 says. Make me wise by teaching me that my days are but a handbreadth. But we act like it's not coming for us. And here's what's interesting about this. This avoidance of death and that everything, everything that's coming to an end and, and death is coming for me and all my friends. Refusing to deal with that and to keep living like YOLO and it all matters right now and this is all that there ever is gonna be and I get to do what I wanna do right now to max out my ecstasy right now. Guess what that ends up doing to us? It makes us wildly inauthentic. And in this town, that's a no-no. Because in this town, authenticity is a God. Don't get in a co-write with me. Don't get in a business meeting with me. Don't try to start some new venture if it's not gonna have authenticity. That's why no one goes to Embers, okay? Cross street. I'm serious. Don't throw, don't throw kitschy at me. Give me authentic. Give me something that's real and do not get inauthentic with me because we elevate authenticity. Sorry if you work at Embers. Here's what. <laughs> the reality of death coming to me for me to be able to avoid that and the, this, is, this life is all that there is stops me from being able to deal with reality. Because guess what reality is? Death is coming for you. And if I'm not dealing with reality, I become wildly inauthentic. German philosopher Hannah Arndt said, the trouble with human happiness is that it is constantly beset by fear. Here's what she means by that. The trouble with human happiness, my joy, my experience of blissful things, the trouble with that is that it is constantly beset, like constantly attacked by fear. Here's what she's saying. I know that none of us in here have ever had pure and unfiltered joy and contentment. You know how I know that? Because your joy and contentment is attacked by fear that it will not always be this way. You know whenever you're experiencing a joyful moment, a party, a vacation, a great family dinner, whenever you're having a moment of pure joy, guess what is haunting you in the back of your mind? What do I have to do to not let this ever stop? I have to feel this way all the time. I need to feel on my high all the time. I'm gonna lose it. It's like a vapor. I can't grab it. So none of us actually know what pure contentment is like. Even in small moments of it, I'm never sure that I'll always have it because human happiness is constantly beset by fear. Another philosopher said, craving is haunted by losing. All of my craving, all of my desiring, all of my longing, it's haunted. Like being in a ghost house, like I know there's this loss that's coming. And so I gotta soak it all up now and I gotta get it all out now and I gotta maximize life now. This is what every parent of grown children says to parents of, of children who are young at home like me. You're gonna miss this. You can't, you can't get it back. You're gonna wish you had it back. You know what they know? Because it's gonna feel like that. And so even when I'm enjoying being with my kids and I love my kids, I adore them, guess what's being haunted by me? Guess what is haunting me? It's not gonna last forever. You won't have it like this forever. They're gonna be gone because craving is haunted by losing. I can't enjoy anything without the unrelenting awareness that the enjoyment of that moment won't last. And then death comes along and proves how true that is. It's not gonna last. Do you know that because of death and decay, everything you love you will lose? Glad you came to church this morning. <laughs> Death guarantees that everything you love, you will lose. So of course I don't wanna think about death and decay. Of course I wanna keep it in abstraction. Of course I don't wanna spend time meditating on that reality. 
So I'll focus on getting rich or getting Botox because I can't bear the thought of losing all that I love and all that I love wasting away. I can't deal with it. I can't handle it. It's too much. Because deep down what I really want, what I most desperately crave is to find a beloved who could never be lost. Which is an unnerving thought. I have to find something that could never be lost, never be taken from me. But it's unnerving because it means that everything I love, I will lose one day. Unless Jesus has defeated death. Unless on the third day he actually rose again. Unless Jesus blew a hole in the back of death and then walked out the other side. Unless Jesus swallowed up death in victory. Now death maybe. It hasn't lost its sadness, but now death has lost its stinging power over me. If death means that everything you love you will lose, the empty grave means that you have a beloved that could never lose you. Because Jesus is alive and not dead. He defeated death. Death doesn't get the final word on your life or the life of the world. You finally have something that can never be lost, Jesus. And because Jesus took the power of the grave, the grave does not have the power over you anymore. As George Herbert famously said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. The death doesn't have the power over you like it used to because Jesus defeated death. Meaning a victorious Jesus gets the final say on how the story of the world ends, not death. Death and all of his friends will be delivered its final death blow. That's what verse 26 just told you. Which means, this is, this is like rubber meets the road. The practic- this is like how the real resurrection gives you real power and real comfort when there's real pain and real loss. The pain of death now, which is very real. The sorrow of death now which is very real. The anguish and the grief and the loss of death now, which is all very real. Here's what the empty tomb tells you. All of that sorrow has an expiration day. It will not last forever. Your grief right now is telling you a story. And here's what it's telling you. It will always be like this. Your grief right now is telling you that you will suffocate under the weight of it. You can't handle it. And it's what your fear fantasies tell you too, that if your wildest fears came true, you wouldn't be able to handle it. It'd be too much for you to bear. And so you spend your time trying to protect and not let your wildest fear fantasies about death come true for you. And it's telling you that death has won and will win. But the resurrection says, Jesus will have the final word on how this world and how your, the story of your life ends, not death. So as excruciating as the pain is now, Whatever the pain that you're grieving now, whatever loss you have experienced now, whatever loss you're afraid of experiencing, Paul is telling you because of the resurrection, all of those things are temporary. They're not permanent. They're they're real now. They are not permanent. They will not outlast Jesus because Jesus has delivered death, it's death blow. And one day the last enemy to be defeated will be death itself. And the, the, the reality of death being so finite, according to the Christian in the Bible, the reality of death being so temporary the, the pain of what we experience here being so not final because of Jesus and his resurrection, Paul sums all that up in 1 Corinthians 15 with one word. Jesus does it too in his ministry several times. Paul uses a word here when talking about death 
that throws so much shade at death. It's, it's such a dig on death. Paul is so certain that death will not have the final say. Paul is so certain that the pain of death is so temporary. He has the audacity multiple times, but in verse 20, he calls death sleep. Maybe the most powerful word of the entire passage. Do you realize what he's saying? Death is not death for the Christian. Death is sleep. Death is like a nap for Jesus. Guess what happens to people who are sleeping and not dead? They wake up again. You get to see them again, experience them again, hang with them again, talk with them again, commune with them again. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul looks at this thing that we call death, this final, ultimate ender of all enders, and he says, oh no, death isn't death for you anymore. It's like sleep. You're, you're gonna go to sleep one day, and all your loved ones are gonna go to sleep one day too, but they're gonna wake up again, and so are you. Death is like nap for you, Christian. You're, na- I love naps. Naps are awesome. And Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, it's as unthreatening as a nap. It's like sleep. You and everyone that you know that belongs to Jesus will wake up from this nap one day. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Christian, this is true for you now because of the reality of the real resurrection. It deals with our shame, deals with our accuser. Jesus was crucified for our sins, but raised for our justification. And the real resurrection deals with our death, our fear of death and death itself. Jesus died, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, we believe we can actually talk to you right now that living Jesus, you are hearing us right now because you are alive and not dead. And so Jesus, would you give us the hope? Would you give us the comfort? Would you give us the audacity to believe that our accuser has been silenced, that we, we have the receipt of an empty grave, that you have, you've drank the cup to the bottom, and now it cannot hold us anymore. And Jesus, you also, because you blew a hole in the back of death and walked out the other side, now death is like sleep for us. So we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to be afraid of death and decay coming for us and all that we love because you've defeated death. Pray in these next few moments that becomes viscerally true for me and my friends as we sing out, as we cry out, as we hope with all that we have in the power of the resurrection. We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen.